Welcome back, Rebels. Let's talk about pricing. What about pricing would you like to talk about? Uh, creatives are very bad at asking for any amount of money for the hard work that they do. I think there's so much psychology wrapped up into it. Um, I think that there's culture has made us believe that a creative practice should be done for the benefit of the world as an altruistic gift from the creative person and they should be able to survive on dust and thin air uh, as their breakfast, lunch and dinner because their duty is to give away their work to the world. Um, because they have fun making that work, they would be very much in the wrong to actually charge any money for make to make that work. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that the vast majority of creatives a, don't know their worth and B, don't charge their worth. 100%. I think, yeah, you can have said it better there. I think so many creatives aren't charging enough for them to live on. I think this is where I kind of imagine a lot of listeners of this show, actually, well, I know a lot of listeners of this show will have, will be either studying or be at uni. They are working in jobs and they have a creative passion on the side. And it's something that they really want to be able to turn into a career. But there's that kind of like gap of like, okay, well, I'd love to just like magically next day quit my job and then go and do this forever. But there's this little thing in society that kind of keeps things going called money, which holds a lot of people back. And they're like, well, actually, if I go and charge this, like how many, how many of these products would I sell? How many of like my service would I have to offer to actually make the money that I need to earn? And I think as soon as you have, you realize actually, well, if you're a, say, a photographer, for example, and you're charging 50 pounds a shoot, how many shoots do you need to shoot in a month to actually earn the wage that you need to do to survive? And then when you work out that number, like, is that even physically possible? And if it is physically possible in terms of the actual amount of hours in a day, then do you then have the time as well to find these clients? Like, and is like, if there's, and also there's only going to ever be so many clients. So it's like, well, is, is there even that amount of people looking for that amount of stuff at that period of time? And it sort of becomes this like mind boggling amount of, numbers that you're like well I can't do this it's not possible it's actually if you flip it and you think okay well this is what I earn currently or this is what I would like to earn this is how much I can physically do in a year then break that down to months and weeks so say if you're like okay well I need to do four of these a week over a year charge at this rate then that can that can sustain me breaking it down that way and then it's like you get left with a you don't just make up a price like I think what most creatives do at the start is like oh well I could charge um 50 100 200 pounds for this it's like well this is how much I need to charge to survive and then giving that a go because I think having that approach that's what I've done with my photography I've just worked out this is how much I want to earn in a year this is how much I can physically shoot in a month so each shoot needs to bring me this amount of money and just started there yes is, is the working out how much you need is a very important step so if you can, like certainly when we started our business, we cut costs everywhere that we could. Um, we didn't eat out. We didn't go out for drinks. We uh, were never to be found when it was time to buy rounds. Uh, we were just like, we were just <laughs> saving every single penny. I sold my sneaker collection and much as I love buying trainers, that was a, a, that was a luxury that I could not be afforded because everything was about the business. Every penny we made went into the business. And it's funny, I, I still think about, I'm still, I'm owed 300 quid from our business from the really early <laughs> days when I put in 300 quid to buy phone boards. Um, and 
like obviously I've never taken that out and obviously it still owes me 300 quid but for for you and me I think we always had the um that long-term approach of everything that we do now is we'll we'll pay us dividends in the end I mean literal dividends um yeah but we knew what we needed to survive when we bought Yonaron she you and I had both managed ways to get out of our rent your girlfriend was paying yours I moved back in with my parents um Yona had rent so her wages when we started were higher than yours and mine because we knew what her base amount was we knew what all three of us needed to survive and we knew that that's what we needed to bring in every single month in order to keep each one of us surviving but because we'd cut down that gave us so much more opportunity to to build our business to reinvest cash because you can work out you and I are at the stage now of our careers where we're in very fortunate positions i say fortunate but also we do have this 10 year history that's got us to this stage but because we're financially more secure um than we were in the in those beginning days where where sort of every penny counted um but knowing now exactly what we need to bring in knowing then exactly what we needed to bring in those things change over time and for me I, I think so much of it is working out like where the smart money is so one of our listeners contacted us recently and uh, has come up with this kind of workshop format and it sounds awesome and she's converting a part of her house to be a studio to do the workshops in blah 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 i was like well is there a way that you can turn this into a mobile thing is there a way that all of your equipment you could take with you and you could start going to corporate companies because what you're offering sounds like something that corporates would be really interested in and a corporate budget is much more than an average joe on the street because if you're bringing value to that to that company to their members of staff that that, that's going to get more work out of them or they're just going to have fun or it's going to be team building or whatever it might be they have a larger budget for that so it's the same product but you're going to get more money for doing the same thing. Understanding the market is really key and understanding like who your service or whatever you're selling, like who that's for. Because if you've got an idea and you're like, okay, well, I want to do this specific idea for these kinds of people, but those kinds of people don't have the money to pay for your idea, then suddenly that there's not a market there. Unfortunately, you can't do that as a career because there's not the world doesn't exist in that way. Whereas you kind of need to have that balance of like, okay, well, if this is what I want to be doing every day, who, and this is how much I need to earn per thing based on what we've worked out over a whole year. It's like, well, who can pay for that? And then like, you can then look around like, well, is, is a corporate route a better route for that? Like with photographers as an example, lots of people go and do weddings because they can earn lots of money in that during the summer months. And that kind of like sorts them out for the rest of the year. So like, actually, if I, what I want to do is photography and I need to do this amount of jobs a year, then actually weddings, that maybe that's a really good thing that I can go and do. But if you really don't want to do weddings, all you want to do is take pictures of sh- like street signs, if that's your thing, and there's not a market of people who are willing to buy those, then unfortunately that can never become a job. So it's like, you're gonna have to balance it in some way to work out, okay, well, is there a market for what I want to do? And is are these people willing to pay for it? And then if they're not, then it's like, well, who is willing to pay for it? And do you want to work with those people? If if the answer is no all over the place, then it's like, well, I'm now going to have to either sacrifice one of those things to allow myself to do what I want to do or just try something a little bit different. Yeah, and when it comes to pricing your work, I, I think you are going to lose clients because there are people that are not going to like 
especially if they've come to you before and all of a sudden your prices are going up because you've started to yeah. realize that you've that you've undervalued yourself you may lose that client and that's a very very scary prospect um so there's a certain amount of real bravery that goes into it of weathering the storm of in the beginning certain people saying no this is too expensive for me also saying but so-and-so's offered it to me for this cheap price or for free or whatever it might be, because there's always people who are going to, I mean, we've talked about working for free before on this podcast. Like I think you should either work for free or very expensive um, with no middle ground. Um, And we can talk (laughs) about working for free in another intro, but, um, but when it comes to that, that, that point where you, you do increase your prices to a, a, a premium, because you feel that you are able to deliver a premium service, that's going to be the scary point where people who are used to paying much less for that product, you you will lose them and you just have to kind of ride through that. I think a lot of people assume that they know what the market is uh, and they will just guess, well, no one's going to have a thousand pounds to spend on my product. Yet, whatever your product is, there probably is someone out there that does have a decent budget to spend on your product. And don't go saying no for the person before they've said no to you. It can feel very nerve wracking to click send on a on a quote that you're about to send out to a client and it's got the most zeros on, on something that you've ever put on it before. That's a really scary moment. However, don't go before you send, click send. It's like once you get 10 of those back that go, this is too expensive for us, then maybe that's the market trying to sell you something. But don't before you've even sent it go, well, it's probably too much. Let me just knock this off and knock this off and knock this off and start negotiating with yourself because you're trying yeah. to get that yes. I've actually started to do the opposite of that now. I think it's just through experience. I'll like work out what my price would be. And then I was like, I was going to add a bit. And always just add a little bit because all, all like it can always be things that can go wrong. Like you never know what extra materials and stuff you might have to buy. But just having that confidence to just push it, just keep pushing it. Because at some point there is going to be a limit of like how good you are. What is your value compared to what you can charge for that? And I think that's what a lot of being creative is when it comes to pricing is it's just pushing your value and just trying to find your actual ground. Because it's like if you've been painting for a week, there's a good chance that your value isn't very high to the consumers because you're probably not very good. Whereas if you've been doing it for years and you're actually a master at that craft, you're probably going to be able to charge much more. So it's you kind of keep pushing until you get to a stage where there's more no's that are coming back that it's actually kind of affecting your your margins, I suppose. But like never stop, like never stop pushing. Like as soon as you've got, okay, well, actually I made this amount this month and all these people said yes to it which means all of those people would have said yes to it if it was £10 more, which means you could have charged more for it. And the amount of times that we've kind of uh, given out quotes before and you send out a quote and someone's like, oh, yes, I'll go for that. As soon as, you've, as, soon as they say yes, that means you could have charged more. But if you send something out and they, they come back and go, like, oh, we can't afford that or can we meet in the middle somewhere or something like that, that's when you know, okay, well, I'm probably hitting my threshold here. Because if they come back straight away every time and say yes, then that means you could have charged more for that. And I think when you just look at what like supermarkets do all the time, and I look about how much a packet of crisps costs now, 90p or something for a bag of crisps that a few years ago might have cost 30p. And it's just, we'll just keep creeping it up. We'll keep creeping it up and just see what happens. And then what they'll do is, okay, well, actually, if sales have dropped by 10% on these, then they'll just bring the price back down a couple of pence to where it was before. And it's just working out kind of how much you can charge, how, how you can get the most out of 
like your consumers, I suppose. And that is your value. It's like the, pushing it to the limit. That's when you realize like how much you can actually charge. Whereas I think too many people just think before they've even said it that, oh no, people wouldn't pay that for what I do. Yeah. And also ask your friends, ask your friends how much they're charging um, and have open and honest discussions about money. I think if you are um, speaking at an event, speak to the other speakers and ask, ask them what their fee was. The more you establish yourself with brand, the more that people realize that you are a desirable brand that they want to be associated with, the more you are able to charge because there's only one of you. Um, and I think that's where a lot of creatives fall down is they are, it's just a race to the bottom. It's whoever will do this X, Y, Z job for the cheapest because everyone is just doing the same, the same product with the same style. Um, whereas as soon as you do develop your own style and become known for that style a little bit. So yes, if so. you've got the style of, uh, so music, music video director and future guest on the show, um, Chris Breslauer, if it like, you can only get him by going to him. Like you can only get uh, my neon paintings by coming to me. Like there's create that demand where there is only one of you. And at that point you really like, I mean, really you can charge whatever you think you're worth. Um, and then, and, and the other thing as well is I would rather um, get one 10 grand job every three months than, oh, got to do maths, Adam. You're going to have to help me out here. <laughs> I'd rather do one 10 grand job every two months than spend two months doing 10 jobs for 1000 pounds. Like I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather have like a drought, but then one big job that sees me through. And that can be like nerve wracking and you have to really trust that in yourself and in your brand and knowing that, the, that those bigger kind of jobs are coming in. Um, but as soon as you do get to that stage, it is, it is much more relaxing to just, go with the big fun projects rather than scrambling around just like grabbing and clutching at all of the little all of the little baskets and don't let them go and don't drop don't drop a job like just work on big fun shit that can support you for a decent amount of time and i suppose with that as well like i imagine like listening to this you're pretty thinking oh that's great but i can't just times my prices by 10 but you can and it's you're, but you're not giving the same product at the end of it. I think that's what you kind of need to think about. Is it's like, well, what would my service look like if it cost ten times more? It's like if you're a hairdresser, as an example, and you're charging currently maybe twenty pounds a haircut, then what would it look like if you were charging two hundred pounds? Like you would probably arrive. There'd be maybe like some a drink waiting for you. There might be some entertainment that would happen in like there's always different things you could add on i think just thinking about like what your service what your product is currently and then what what that could possibly look like if you charge 10 times the amount for it like you, it doesn't need to be 10 times the amount of value as the initial thing but it's just standing out enough being different enough that suddenly that becomes worth it to the client yeah and and i have to say like to like i don't want this to come a, across like either of us are tooting our own horns but you have to look at what both of the hosts of this show have done in the past 18 months since the beginning of the pandemic like we both started from scratch and we took our instagrams mm. like i had uh i had 900 followers when i when when lockdown hit um and i started painting neon and i i didn't take any commissions i i like waited until there was a demand before i started selling my work and now like this is this is 18 months like yes i'm a good painter and that took 
20 years to get to the stage where I'm a good enough painter. But the branding that's happened for my own personal account in the last year and a half, I've grown a mailing list of 1,500 people roughly that are interested in buying work. Whenever I drop a series of prints or, uh, or a series of drawings like I did the other day, they sell out. Um, I sold out 15 original drawings in an hour um, and they were 400 quid each. So like that's a good amount of money that has all happened in like that's branding that has happened organically over the past 18 months. And you've, you've got a kind of a similar story. I think my first like paid commission for like doing photography was about a year ago now. And I think I started like 18 months ago when kind of lockdown hit. And that's mad to think that like that's all happened in such a short space of time, but it's not an accident. And it's like everything that we talk about in the show, we've just put that into practice. We've built up a brand. I think that's that's where it kind of all comes down to. It's like, we're not the people who are just like, we won't paint you anything. I won't just take a picture of anything. It's like, we've set up the brand of the things that we want to do. We found a market for that that's willing to pay for it, that can afford as based on, everything that we've talked about previously in this intro and then we've just kept doing that and i think what is really evident is the fact that neither of us have skewed from that we've both kind of had our vision this is what we want to do this is who we want to hit and we've just kept going and there's been so many jobs that i've turned down but i think by turning down those jobs and only doing the ones that fit my brand it's helped the brand and pushed it even further forward and if i ever did do something it would just wouldn't have hit my feed. So it's not affecting the visuals that I want to put out, the things that I want to do going forward. And I've now built myself up into a situation where I'm so desirable within a certain community of people that I'm booked up for months in advance. And I know that if I need bookings, I can just drop a little message out and be like, okay, I've got some availability at this time and they will just get filled because the brand's there. And it's like, you can go to another photographer to get something similar but it's not going to be me. And I think just when people have a shoot with me now, they'll post it and they'll be like, they're proud to be able to put the fact that it was with me. And I think as a listener of the show, you need to be that person. You need to be someone that someone's like, I'm so glad that I spent my money on this person because it makes them look good in some way. And I suppose this all comes down to like value and status and all those kind of things. But it's like being the brand that people want to buy. Like you can, you think about designer clothing you can be that as a person, you can be that as a creative, like have the brand that people want to spend the money on because it makes them look great. And look, we, we understand how hard this is um, and we don't expect you all to to build successful brands in 18 months because like we say, we, we've got years of experience of doing this and th- those are the things that we have applied. But I do expect you will be able to do it much quicker if you listen to this show, if you listen to other shows, uh, this week's guest, Chris Doe, listen to his podcast, The Future. Um, there is so much out there that you will be able to do it quicker. You'll be able to do it quicker than we did if you take our whole careers as a whole and, and look at the last 100%. 11 years. You'll definitely be able to do it quicker than that. So um, it is hard. We're at the end of a DM if you have questions. We're helping people every day um, with their with their sort of ins and outs. And so on that note, we'll get into this week's guest, Chris Doe, uh, who's an absolute hero of both of ours, who we have learned so much from over the years. And especially when it comes to pricing, that's why we chose to talk a little bit about pricing in this intro is because this this guy, he's the, the pricing guru. Yeah, if you go onto YouTube, if you need to know how to price your work creatively, if you need that bit of a confidence boost, a bit of a mindset change, uh, if this intro has kind of given you the little bit of a nudge in a, a slightly different direction to what you were thinking about previously, 
go and consume Chris's content on YouTube. But it's um, the future with no E on the end um, for just like such sound business advice from someone who is just an expert in the industry and he knows what creatives are worth and how you can charge those things. Yeah, and do us a favor. When we interview amazing guests, go and leave a comment on their pages just saying, I heard you on Creative Rebels and I really loved it. Um, because we want our guests to know that it was worth their time to come on this on this show and um, share all this knowledge with you. So if you guys could do that for us, we would really appreciate it. Yes, so without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Chris Doe. Uh, he has a big audacious goal with the future, uh, which is to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. Hey, Chris. Hello. Welcome to the show, dude. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much. So, Chris, you've been in business since 1995, um, but I've heard you say that it's only really been the past kind of maybe five or six years where you've really started to find find yourself and what you're all about. Could you tell us like what you have discovered? Yeah, I think there are phases of self-discovery. I'm almost 50 years old, so it's like we, we, we better find ourselves pretty soon because I'm already past that midlife point. And <laughs> I, I, initially, I didn't have an identity at all. I was just trying to fit in with the crowd. And then I found graphic design. And then I started to feel like, hey, this is my tribe. These are my people. And I went all in. I constructed a whole identity around myself as a graphic designer and built a company around that identity. And that kept going. But it was always the work first. Put the work first. Don't make it about you. Surrender the ego. Put it about the work. And so I did that for about 15, 16 years. And I never really wrote much. I consumed a lot, but I didn't really speak. I didn't use my voice in the world. But then in 2014, I ran into an old uh, college friend of mine. His name is Jose Caballé. And he said, let's go make some YouTube videos together. And this is like, I'm 42 years old. And my thoughts were, why would we ever do that, Jose? There are only amateurs, wannabes, uh, near-to-do-wells, hacks. They're on YouTube. The professionals like myself, we don't go on YouTube. What are we doing here? But that was a very naive point of view and very judgmental and I think some form of cognitive bias where this point of view disrupts my worldview. So I'm going to push against that. I'm going to reject that. But even though I was reluctant to go on YouTube, the decision to do so changed my life, changed my career, changed my purpose. And I have a whole different life and a different meaning because of those videos on YouTube. And now I found my voice. My voice is out of an educator. And I'm trying to teach a whole lot of people how to make a living doing what they love. And going back to what you said there a minute ago about surrendering your ego when you were younger. How did you go about doing that? Because I think that's something that most people struggle with, especially if you're doing something that's quite visual and you're putting out to the world. You kind of want the world to say back to you, you're really great at what you do. How did you kind of like balance that? Uh, Well, I think my attitude towards design is a reflection of the school that I went to, which is uh, Art Center. And Art Center was a place that pride uh, itself on preparing professionals to, to enter the marketplace. We had a lot of uh, European-inspired instructors uh, from, from, from Basel, from the Bauhaus, where the work is the work, and you put the work first, you put the client. And I didn't want to be known as a designer, but through the work, not because I said bombastic things that got some people happy and made some people really angry. It was never about that. And I remember in the beginning when we were making content, getting on social media as a service design company, I often wrote in a very generic corporate voice where everything was safe and everything was cool and it didn't sound like anyone. And if you read most press releases, that's kind of how it sounds. 
because I was trying to like hit a lot of people, didn't want to offend anybody. And that's, that's why my own identity, my own voice wasn't ever present. It's funny. It's funny when you mention about the, the, the kind of the shouting and being bombastic, it's like, I liken it to in MMA and I know you're, you're an MMA fan. It's like Conor McGregor is not the best fighter in the world but he gets the biggest paychecks by a significant amount because he makes the most noise um, and he's very entertaining and he's a good, he, he cuts a good promo. But when it comes to like actual pure skill, there are so many fighters that are a million times better than him. And I I think that's really important. Like, like obviously <laughs> probably a bad argument because Connor's got so much money and has been so successful. But I really do think it, it so much comes down to the craft and there's so much that can be hidden when you are that that loud voice that then can be can you can then be exposed we can't afford to like we haven't got the ufc protecting us putting in us in fights that we're probably going to win it's like we always have our craft and our um and, and what we've built to to lean on um which i think i think that's so important especially if you if you kind of stumble ac- across something that helps you to go viral it's like are you are you ready because if your if your skill and your craft doesn't back you up then you're going to get yourself into hot water you're talking my language now you're talking about identity you're probably talking about branding and you're talking about mma i'm in my sweet spot right now so <laughs> let, let's rift a little bit we might lose a few uh, audience members but let's go <laughs> i, I want to point out a difference between making noise and telling a really compelling story. And there are a lot of fighters who make a lot of noise, and I can see that they're trying really hard to be Conor McGregor, but they're not. And there's a lot of things, and I want to break this down because I've been studying uh, mixed martial arts, and, and just from a fan point of view, I don't practice martial arts, but just watching the characters emerge and seeing how this obscure, mostly banned fighting organization became this world beater that it is. <clears throat> We know this in in the uh, prize fighting. If you don't care about the characters, you don't care about the outcome. Therefore, you don't pay. It's not pulling and capturing the imagination of the public. And what Conor McGregor d- did, which uh, some people who knew him before he was a superstar saw that this guy reads a lot about philosophy and ideas, and he knows how to tell a story. And you think of the, some of the greatest people that their their names have transcended the sport. You think about people like Muhammad Ali. I'm not sure of this, but I think Muhammad Ali is probably the first rapper. If you ever watch him talking about stuff in his cadence and his flow, he's he's spitting fire off the top of his head. And that's what gets people really, really excited. And he has a point of view. You know, he, he converted himself to become a Muslim and he was anti-war and he had a whole point of view and he knew how to say things. It's like, you know how fast I am? And they're like, well, how fast? He's like, I already touched you twice and you didn't even know it. He's just making stuff up. <laughs> Right. And so then you see Bruce Lee. I think Bruce Lee made like four films, four films. And his name is forever cemented with um, uh, with martial arts, with Kung Fu, with all these things. And why is that? Because Bruce Lee was a philosopher more so than he was uh, like an amazing martial artist. And he would say things like be water. It's like, what does that even mean? So I think Conor McGregor looks at this and studies all this being a student of not just martial arts, but the fight game and philosophy to see what characters stand out. If you watch Conor McGregor come on the scene, he doesn't have any tattoos, he doesn't have anything fancy. He starts to develop this, and the more he starts to find his voice, the more the public falls in love with him. We need characters, we need icons, we need we need heroes to stand in for us to either be the hero or 
the villain. And in this case, he plays both roles really well. And there's tremendous skill underneath all that bravado. There really is because he would not be a superstar. It's in the last uh, four or five years that perhaps he's caught up to a level of competition or the competition is caught up to him. And once the veneer of invincibility has been worn off, people are a lot more courageous. The head games don't work so much anymore. And people admit they're fighting with the heart. You saw Jose Aldo run in face forward against Conor McGregor. When does he do that? And then he gets slammed and knocked out. And so I think there's something there. And if you ever watch these, uh, the, the promoters who have to craft and create a character that they can sell to the public, it's a lot of work for them. Uh, Dustin Poirier recently beat Conor McGregor again for the second time. He doesn't like to talk on the camera. And so you might be a good fighter. You have good causes. You seem to be a really good guy. But it's like, Ugh. you know, we, you got to give us a reason to care about you. And I think a lot of designers can learn this. Here's an example. Enter into Exhibit A. Aaron Draplin. Aaron Draplin is known and beloved the world over. Aaron Draplin, to many people, is considered one of the greatest designers. If you ask the young people who's a great designer, the name Aaron Draplin comes up. Probably a lot more before the name Michael Beirut or Paul Rand or some of the greats out there. Why is that? Because he's told a better story and he keeps telling that story over and over again. And he lets you know who he is, what he stands for, what his worldviews are, so that you and the audience can raise your hand and say, hey, I believe what you believe. People like us, we do things like this. And that's why he's associated with that. Now, I think Aaron, he's a friend of mine. He's an excellent designer. He's the world's best designer. Not even close. Not even close. But he's, he can tell a funny joke. He's a charming guy. And he's got a strong personality. And that goes really far in this world. So on that note, how do you keep a story compelling? Because someone like Colin, who at some point people are going to kind of see that he's not invincible and he's going to need to be able to change it up to be able to continue to keep telling that story to keep people coming along, I suppose. And then you can link this to kind of like branding and rebranding a business. Like, so how do you keep the attention there? So with Connor, people care because for a lot of people who don't feel represented, he stands for them and they get it. His bravado, his brashness, his uh, over-the-top predictions and everything that he does really gets us into the fight. It's like, oh my God, this guy's so unstoppable. He calls out his own predictions in terms of like when he's going to become the champ, how much money he's going to make. And there's this clip with, um, I forget where I saw, maybe it was on Joe Rogan, how when he, he barely had any money and he says, I'm going to make $100 million. And then the person interviewing him, it wasn't Joe, but somebody else was interviewing him and said, uh, how, how far along are you on that goal? He's like, I'm making progress. At that time, he barely had any money to his name. Just the belief, the manifestation of self. And so people ride this thing and he goes and knocks out one person after the other in such amazing fashion. Okay, so that's a story. It's like the great white hope. The Irishman who comes in to conquer the UFC, he calls the predictions and he's, he's got a way of twisting words. And I, I love the, the way that he, he steps into the ring. And I remember after he won, won the title, and he goes, you know, I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to absolutely no one. And it was just like, everyone's like, what? Oh, my God. That guy knows how to say things. And he's ready to go. Right? And that's, that's why we're like tuning in to watch him. And then when he loses, a different story is going to emerge. It's going to be the story of um, a fallen hero facing adversity to see if he can overcome it. And we're going to see if that, not that he's an underdog, but can he rise back or is he going to remain in infamy? What's the story there? And we want to see the outcome of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, 
when it comes to creatives and, and us kind of telling our stories, how, because I always struggle with this, it, as your account and your presence and people are finding out about you and it's growing all the time and you're bringing new people into your sphere, should you be retelling your story over and over again? Should it be sort of like regularly reintroducing yourself because you know there's new eyeballs there who don't have the backstory? Or is it just sort of more, would you recommend just sort of like, I don't know, just kind of flowing, but but making sure your universal truths are things that you speak about on a regular basis? Because I'm kind of struggling with it at the moment. My position on this, David, has evolved quite a bit. In the beginning, I didn't want to talk about myself at all. I've made that point pretty clear. And then I started to tell my story and I was like, that's enough. That's enough of me telling my story. I think at this point people already know, but that's an assumption that people consume your content and they already know who you are to a point in which you're like Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Okay. You don't need to tell your story. People already, Will Smith, we got you. Tom Cruise. Uh huh. Uh huh. I know your story, but you know, to, to average people, to mortals who aren't on the, the press tour, I think we do have to tell her story. Even guys like Gary Vaynerchuk tells his story from Belarus over and over and over again. And you know what? People don't seem to get tired of it. Aaron Draplin tells his story over and over again. And we understand that. So why is that? It's because we're constantly putting ourselves in front of a new audience. And just because somebody hears your story once doesn't mean that they now know it and they're tired of it. The trick is learn how to tell a really compelling story so that people do not get tired of hearing it. And if you think, there's only been a handful of movies that have ever been made. They just keep making the same movie again. Romeo and Juliet is a love story that's been repeated over and over again. Depending on who you ask, it's it's a comedy or a tragedy, right? Two people fall in love, they can't get together because something's going on, something usually artificial. And then they find a way to fall in love, or they don't, because it ends in a certain way. Okay, so they, they, don't, they can't get together because their families, the Montagues and the Capulets, hate each other. And they pay with their lives. And then you go into like, um, uh, what is that movie? You Got Mail or one of these rom-coms. It's the same setup again. These two people should be together, but they can't because one person owns a giant um, bookstore chain and the other one owns the bookstore that's around the corner. And they stand for totally opposite things. And so we have to tune in to find out if they're going to get together or not. It's the same story. So you just have to learn how to tell a really good story and we'll listen and we'll watch and it's okay. And I suppose it's the room you're in as well, because when I think about like, Gary Vaynerchuk as an example, I feel like he most often talks about his story when he's doing kind of talks to people who maybe don't know who he is yet. And because I always find whether I watch like a live talk of his, I'm like, okay, I'm skipping past the first 15 minutes because I know exactly word for word what he's going to say in that intro. Um, but then when it's kind of you're hearing other interviews with him, you maybe don't hear it as much, but you get a smaller portion of it. I feel like it's almost kind of like understanding who's in the room with you and telling that story. Because obviously if you're in the room with your parents, you may obviously know exactly who you are, where you've come from. And then close friends, maybe a little bit less. And then I suppose it's kind of like judging that as you go along. There's this line I was reading in the, in the book called uh, Directing the Story, written by Francis Claybaugh. And he said something in there to the effect of, uh, to know me is to know my story. You know my name. There's a whole bunch of other things I can't remember off the top of my head. But you don't know my story. You don't know my story. So even with your parents, who know you really well, obviously, when they, when you sit together and have tea or lunch or whatever, you know, what do they say? They're going to say, Adam, how was your day? And in your mind, it's like, my day is exactly like the yesterday, but a few variables have changed. But it's it's how we connect. It's how we build rapport. It's how we relate. And we were, we're willing to hear the same story again. And then you're searching for the one thing that might be different, that might be of interest to your parents. 
But again, when when you're talking to your children, you're going to ask little Timmy, little Mary, how was your day today? And that's how you begin because we need to know your story. We need to know the events of your life because that's make that's how you uh, that's how you identify with each other. And for Vaynerchuk, as your audience gets bigger and bigger, the presumption is going to be not everybody's going to know your name. You're going to step in front of a thousand people, two thousand people. There's no way all two thousand people know who you are. Not yet. Not now. I mean, like again, if you're Tom Cruise, The Rock, or some other, if you're Beyonce, people know who you are. We get it. Other than that, no. I think that's a really interesting point about when someone say, how's your day today? Because it's not like, tell me your full life story every single time. It's just kind of like the short part of your life that's currently going on that's maybe of most interest to the person there. I suppose it's understanding that in terms of like who your audience is and what they need to hear. Yeah, and I guess it's like it's like not saying no for the other person. Um, I was I was talking to a girl this morning who um, works at, works in a gallery and once we'd got past like what do you do uh, and kind of drilled down more into like what she actually cared about um, and she was super like she was going oh you'd find it really boring and I was like wait 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 don't tell me that I'll f-. like you haven't even told me what it is yet and she's like oh well I write about art theory and I was like well that's incredible and really interesting um but she'd already done the she almost didn't tell me because she'd already done the work of, of saying no you're going to find it boring and I and I think so many people do that I was talking to another creative the other day who um she was just telling me about her she was asking for advice on using social media um specifically TikTok and Instagram and she doesn't have a TikTok account and she was like oh, do you think I should get one and and sort of not realizing what an amazing opportunity tiktok is and and talking about instagram and and just her whole her whole attitude towards it was i don't want to use it because i don't want to i guess it's it's maybe a british thing but i do think it's universal of of people not wanting to look like they're bragging and i think your story doesn't need to look like you're bragging your story is your story it's like if like i was saying to her if you sold a print then that's it's not a brag to say that you sold a print. It's a fact. Just tell people that that print sold and because maybe someone in the future might want to buy one of those prints and they know now that it's for sale. There are different attitudes around work about talking about yourself and how, how much swagger you are allowed to have within society. And we do find that in certain parts of Europe and in the Scandinavian parts, uh, it's like people can't even, they're not even allowed to say anything. And then it starts to create this identity like, well, am I not even special? Like, am I just like everybody else? And there's this this idea like you're too too big for your britches or too big for your boots. And and then they, people cut you down in society. And it's, it's a really strange thing because it creates this thing where we can't even be proud of the things we've accomplished. And that starts to create a whole bunch of other issues about self-worth self-confidence, self-esteem. This can be very devastating to people and to their culture. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was doing a workshop in Dublin and it was for professional people. This is like a six-hour workshop. It's pretty intense business stuff that I'm talking about. And somewhere along the way, we get into this idea and, and they were all very enthusiastic to tell me how in Dublin, you don't talk about yourself. And they said, have you ever heard that term too big for your boots? I'm like, no, but I get a sense of what it means. Okay. Right. And I said, well, what about Conor McGregor? Like, how do you guys feel about him? And they're like, oh, I'm like, he's a world beater. He is a, like on a first name basis, right? When you say Conor, it's like McGregor. 
It's like, who else has been able to do yeah. that? And then, then they said something like, well, we really think he's gone too far and we we're not really happy about him. I said, so you don't like people who talk about themselves and who, who become known because of what it is that they're saying or doing. And they're like, no. I said, how do you feel about me? I'm obviously not from here. And the only reason why I'm here is because I've done a good job, I think, of getting my name out there. They're like, no, Chris, it's different. You're American. So I'm like, what does that mean? You're kinder to Americans than you are to your own people? You know, and then it started to bring up all these questions and issues and deep-seated um, pain that was existing there. And so one of the older women said, you know what? The new generation, they're much better. They're not like us. I said, what do you mean? They're, they're, they're more American. I'm like, wait, so wait, let me just understand this then. So if it's good now and you're proud of them, you're going to say it's an American attribute. And if it's bad, you've now labeled it as an Irish thing. Why don't we just refer to them as the true Irish, the new Irish, but not American? Let's not give away traits that we like. And then it just creates the wrong negative self-talk. So there's that there. Okay. So in society, when we're trained from birth to like adulthood, not to talk about ourselves, not to have identity, not to be proud of what it is that we do, it can become a lifelong problem to overcome. It can be quite difficult. I don't mean to go on the opposite end of the spectrum where some Americans have a really bad reputation of like running around, just talking about themselves all the time, being really loud and obnoxious. We're not talking about that either. There is a spectrum in between, you know, knowing who you are, being able to speak up and identifying the things that you like in your life versus just uh, overcompensating for some childhood trauma and just screaming at the top of your lungs about everything you do all the time to be super self-important. There's a lot of gray in between those two points. At what point did you realize that this content thing was going to be important and that you need to make content in order for, like you said, people to find out who you are and what you've done? I would say it took probably a good year and a half after starting in, in 2014 before I started to realize, hey, this might be something. I mean, prior to like everybody else, I had a Facebook account, I have Twitter and Instagram. I'm not really utilizing it like that. It's mostly a place for me to share my life with friends and family and friends of friends. And so you do the obligatory, here's what I ate, here's where I'm sleeping, here's the sunset I saw, and you just do those super generic things. And then, of course, everybody's like, uh, yeah, and? So you, you get a few followers, but not really because you're not telling any kind of story. You're making the minimum effort. It's just because you have an account. But when I get into it and I start making content on YouTube, Here's the best part. I think in many ways, social media is a bi-directional communication form. It's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. So you, the, the messenger, send out and broadcast a message to the world. And then the receiver gets your signal and they catch it and they're like, oh, what is this thing? It's like a message in a bottle. Let me read this thing. And then they comment back. Hard to do on a podcast, but on a lot of social platforms, they can comment back. So then the receiver sends the signal back and you as the original sender, it's like, well, let's see what I got. And oh, I got a thumbs up. I got a view. They shared this thing. Oh, here's what they're saying. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's really bad. And then you make adjustments so that it's part of the dialogue. And this is the wonderful thing about content creation and social media, which is when you watch a program on TV, the news, late night talk shows, they don't really listen to you. There's almost zero input that you can have on the show. But unlike uh, in traditional media, new media, you can respond 
You can call people out. You can change your program. Somebody doesn't like my lighting. Okay, a lot of people are saying that. I get it. I'm going to change the light. Chris, you need a plant. Okay, I'll put a plant in there. <laughs> I don't know. I'll make the, the set seem a little different. And then here's the really cool part. I love this part, which is when we drop a video, somebody will say something like, how did you know I needed this video today? Oh, this one spoke to me. I, Chris, I felt like you were looking in my eyes and telling me what I needed to hear today. And to a degree, it's because you told me this is what you want. I've been reading your comments. It's like I'm Santa Claus and Santa Claus exists, you know, and you've been writing, you know, Dear Santa, Timmy, I've been reading your letters for 17 years. I know exactly what you want because you've been telling me over and over again. Uh, this is not uh, meant to be taken literally, but metaphorically what is happening is waves and waves of feedback are coming in. And I actually, quite literally, read almost every comment on every social platform and I'm just going through it. And I saw a comment the other day, just last night, I think I was reading. It's like, is this the channel where the guy actually responds to everyone's comments? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I don't write a lot, but I do read your comment. What people don't realize is the fact that so many people are going through the exact same thing that they're going through. So yeah, so as soon as you see one person's been brave enough to ask that question, you realize how many people were there watching the videos that weren't brave enough to ask that question. And it's like, all you need is for the one person to be brave enough to ask that, that then you allows that that then allows you to go and create that content. And I think like I was um, saying it the other day where like I kind of now feel like, because we get that with this show where people are like, I needed this so much right at this point in my life. This has now helped me go and achieve this thing that I wanted to achieve. That now it's almost like a stage where I feel like if we ever stopped, there would be some people in the world who would never go and achieve the thing that they could have achieved without your piece of content. So it's kind of that level of pressure of being like, okay, well, I need to keep creating this because I feel almost like a duty now to the people who haven't listened to us yet that we can go and help them too. How do you kind of deal with that that pressure? You know, I have to, to be totally super honest with you and I might lose a few people by saying this. I don't really think of it like that. The pressure I feel is to show up to be myself and, to, and, and it's a constant prog process. It's never ending to learn who it is that I am and to put that message out into the world. Otherwise, you get pulled in a thousand different directions and you show up to please other people. And when you do that, you don't attract anybody. It's actually not very interesting. So what I'm constantly doing is I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm having conversations like this to discover who the heck I am. And every day I try to show up a little bit less dumb than the day before. And that's it. Because I'm wrong all the time. I would like to be less wrong every day. One thing I've noticed about you is your... The, the way you question, it's really interesting to me. So um, what I tend to do is someone says something and I take my interpretation of what they've said and I run with my answer. And you do it so often with like clarifying questions. Um, is that a technique that you've kind of taught yourself? Is that something natural? Because it, it, I really admire it. I just think you that's how you are avoiding mistakes because you're you're making sure that you know what's being asked of you like straight away by answering those those questions and clarify like you're always clarifying i think there's a quote i want to say it's from abraham lincoln where it's something like where he said if i were given six hours to chop down a tree i would spend five hours sharpening the axe and one hour chopping and so when somebody asks a question somebody has a statement i'm going to spend five-sixths of the time trying to understand the question or comment first before I try to answer it because I've done it the other way. It gets you in all kinds of trouble. 
we make a lot of assumptions. We have um, very selective hearing that's very biased and filtered through our life and our experience. And so when somebody says something, unless they're a podcast interviewer like yourselves, where you have a lot of training or just experience asking questions, people are very poor at asking questions, just like they're very poor at giving feedback. So if we operate under that assumption that people are not very good at articulating their question, we have to slow down and then we have to understand what it is that they're trying to say. Now, I find it, it's helpful for so many different reasons. One, if you ask them a question back, it gives you time to think. Two, you make sure you understand the question so you don't answer the wrong question, right? Because sometimes you'll ask somebody a question and they'll go off on a total tangent. You're like, what a freaking blowhard. Just wasting all my time. You wanker. You don't even understand what it is I'm saying. And, the, and I find that the more you ask questions, the more the person feels like you're paying attention to them. So you're building rapport. You're building connection with that person and you're in alignment. And then by the time you've asked enough questions, the answer almost materializes and presents itself for you for you to just like gently nudge it to the surface. And in doing so, this is a really crazy part. People think you're really smart, that you're kind, you're generous, attentive, and all the things you want to be in your world. In your world. And the last point I want to make is this, is I'm an introvert. I'm a hardcore, shy, weird person, socially awkward as hell. And so I've learned all my life to just keep my mouth closed. But I'm not dumb. I'm listening. And so when somebody asks a question, the best way to get out of saying anything as a shy, awkward, weird person is just to ask them a question back. If you do so, they're like, okay. And most of the times, nine out of 10 times, people even forget that they ask you a question because people like to talk. Now, I was going to do that with you. I was going to ask you a question back, but then you're like, oh, I know what you're doing, Chris, and you're too smart, so I didn't do that with you. But I would normally just ask the question back to hold a mirror to the person and see what they see. I suppose as well, by asking that question, they probably already know the answer that they want to hear. So they'll probably give you a bit more of that as well that you can then come back with. And then they're like, that was a perfect answer because it's what I wanted the answer to be before I'd even asked it. Yes, I don't think it's as as uh, narcissistic or nefarious as that, <laughs> where it's like, I already know the answer, I'm just going to ask you. But I think locked within them, deep within their subconscious is the answer because most of the time, people will not like an idea that they have not once thought themselves or to believe to be true. So if you ask people questions, they're going to reveal it to you. So questions are the doorway to the mind. What you want to do is you want to open those doors, you want to peer inside and see what's there. Now, I've facilitated strategy sessions with clients, um, you know, very big clients, hundreds of millions of dollars like revenue. And I would barely say anything during six or seven hours of like facilitated sessions. At the end, they would do something that was quite radical. They'd come over to me. I'm not a a physically affectionate kind of person, especially to strangers. They'd come over and they're Chris, and they just give me a hug. I'm like, oh, I tighten up and pull back a little bit. I'm like, okay, okay. And they would say something like, I felt heard. I felt seen. You've helped me to get clarity on something that has taken us months to do, and you've done it in a matter of hours. This is amazing. Thank you, brother. I'm like, okay. All I did was ask questions. Of course, I don't say that part out loud. I'm, I smile, and I take credit for it. I'm like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Tell somebody, will you? And that's how it would be. So if you just ask questions, you help them say what's really deep within them, 
and they don't even know that they've been telling you this the whole time. It's a pretty awesome thing. Imagine like you you met the world's greatest chef and you sat down at the table and this is a world-renowned person and it, it took you three months to get on this reservation list and finally the day has come and you're hungry. You haven't eaten in weeks, right? You're ready to eat. You sit down and the chef just starts making you stuff. All of a sudden you're thinking, how do you know I don't like fish? Like you just gave me a giant bowl of fish or I have a nut allergy. Wouldn't it be better if the person just sat down and said, Adam, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like what kind of cuisine did you grow up eating? Uh, and if you could travel in your mind to some exotic location and try the food of those people, what would it be? What's your tolerance for heat? Are you right or left-handed? How hungry? Oh, you haven't eaten in two weeks? Oh my goodness. Let's just ease you in here so that we kind of warm. And then you'd walk away saying, oh my God, that meal was amazing because they did one thing that no one else had done. They cared. It's just like that. If people care, if they show up to ask you and they hold space for you, it makes you feel something inside. And so from this point forward, everything's going to taste just a little bit better because you know that they care about you. I think this is something that people can take on no matter what your business is, no matter what you're doing. It's like taking that element of like actually talking to your customers, really understanding what it is that they want and like deeply want as well, not just kind of like on the surface level, really getting to know them. It's just going to get you so much better results with kind of pleasing your customers. Yeah, I, I watched a video of yours uh, a while back and you were doing like role play with a girl in the audience. So you came to her and you were pretending you were the client and you said, um, we're in need of web design. And she said, oh, thanks so much. I've, I've, uh, I've been told by lots of other clients that I'm really, really good at web design. And so basically you're trying to get across to her that in asking the questions, the the client is going to play their hand of like how much budget they've got, what they think that your services are going to be worth to them and how much that that a good web, website in this occasion, a good website, how much that is going to be worth to them. And she, by the end of it, actually manages to get out like how much she should be charging for this gig as opposed to just going in straight away and selling, which is probably our natural kind of instinct to do. Yeah, I know exactly which video you're talking about. It was, uh, I think, 2018 at the AIGA National Design Conference, and she wanted to know how to do value-based pricing. And so I just turned the tables on her and said, let me just play the role of a client or a prospect and tell me how you would talk to them. Now, I think we have had too many models of what selling looks like so people sell the wrong way we learned from our professors in school or we saw something on tv one time or in a movie and we we, we imagine people like don draper from mad men having this like silver tongue and being able to just basically with the power of his words get the client super excited to sign a blank check essentially what we don't realize is first of all this is scripted by amazing writers for scenarios <laughs> to respond a very specific way it's it's very difficult to do in real time, but quite often we miss the mark because we haven't taken the time to understand what the clients want. And so we, we need to understand a couple things. It's when we look at the world through our point of view, we're missing a whole nother point of view that's really important. And some would argue even more important than, than your point of view, the person standing in front of you, the client, your lover, your, your spouse, your child, they have a point of view and they have a very different lens than yours. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a talk later today and I, I show on the screen a circle. It's just a circle, two-dimensional circle. And I, I'm going to ask the group, what do you see? And everybody's going to say, we see a circle. I get it. Okay. 
And then I show them another image and it's a rectangle. Okay. And I ask, what do you see? They're like, oh, rectangle. Duh. And I said, okay, well, look at this. And then I show them a cylinder. Okay. A cylinder is both a circle and a rectangle and a cylinder. It depends on your point of view. So if I only look at a problem from my point of view, I'm not seeing the whole other side. And so by asking questions, we want to understand what are they looking at? What problem are they trying to solve? How is this going to impact their business? What is the pain that they associate with not getting something like this resolved? And we can never know that by sitting there and guessing. So for me, a lot of like, let's just shake one bad habit right now. If we can, if I could wave my magic wand and I do have a magic wand. There we go. If we can do that, what I want to do is to tell everybody, stop pitching. Because telling is not selling. And that's what a lot of people do. Oh, I have this degree and other people love me. It's like, why is that even relevant to me right now? All you're doing is trying to qualify yourself and trying to prove yourself is the best way to like to undermine my confidence in you. Remember, when somebody meets with you, you start with goodwill. Because people have very little time to spend it with idiots. So when they decide to talk to you, they're already in a state, a state of mind, that this might work. Because otherwise, they're getting out of here. They're going to hang up the phone or they're never going to call you in the first place. So what we do is we try to maintain and build goodwill by asking really great questions and listening. You mentioned the the sort of narrative that is painted around selling and, and culturally and how we've got this wrong idea. I th- I think what's been painted is that a quote-unquote salesman is someone who's going to trick you. They're going to take your money and not actually deliver. You're going to be left with no money left in your pockets and a product that doesn't do what you what that guy said it was going to do. And I think because of that, everyone is so scared to be tarred with the same brush. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with why people are afraid to charge their worth as well, because they don't want to be seen like they're a con merchant. And for me, it's like, if someone wants to buy a mural for me, and, I, and I've been thinking about this recently, this is sort of like the, the argument of free content and paid content. It's like, I do street art, which is completely free. Anyone can view it. And that is my free offering out into the world. And then when I post it online, it's that's my free content that I, that I put on the internet. But then if someone comes to me and wants a canvas or a mural painted, that's really expensive because that's how I pay my bills. And that's like, you're a patron and I really appreciate it. But I know I know what it's worth. And I know that there are people with less skill than me charging more than me. So that gives me the confidence to go out there and, and know what I'm worth. So what is the debate between free versus paid content? What What is the, the lens that you're seeing out there? We get asked a lot, like how much content should I be giving out for free? Should I be drip feeding these little bits to people, but then you have to pay to get the real stuff? Um, and for me, I think art, like art-based stuff is is quite it's quite difficult to do that with. So um, you're you're either working on a commission or you're working on like you've got quite a lot of content that you can post for free. Um, I think it's people who are more like um, teaching that it's difficult when it comes to like free versus paid of of like how much they're going to put out. Yeah. Okay. This is very interesting uh, because some of the most successful artists I know 
uh, like say Banksy, does a lot of free work. Uh, there's this other guy named Beeple, Mike Winkleman, who did a lot of free work for 13 years without any real benefit to it until it paid off, right? So we, we can see that there's some value to building a name, identity, and sharing your work with the world. In the old days, the way we did that was through um, through curators, uh, kingmakers, queenmakers, who would say like, I own the uh, XYZ gallery and I'm going to let you work in. And then they talk like that with a pinky raise with a, a flute of champagne. And it's like, <laughs> shoot, I'm pretty talented. I'm, I'm more talented than that person, if I can say that objectively. But I'm not going to get my work seen. What has happened is then the artists have to respond in a different way. They have to take to the street and use abandoned buildings and sides of uh, uh, adver- advertisements to be able to express the art and share it with the world. So we don't get to be seen in the gallery. We, we're seen in the world. And for a really long time, the way that that image is framed in the public's mind is that's vandalism, that's art. You know, and, and there was this argument that was made and I thought it was pretty profound. Uh, and it was it was with a graffiti movie, I believe. And somebody who's anti-graffiti said, you know what? You're defacing property. He says, look at Mount Rushmore. That's defacing property on a scale you've never even heard of before. And you don't consider that graffiti. It's because you're the one in power, aren't you? You literally carve old dead white men onto the side of a mountain. Okay, so we accept that. So it's like, oh, it's kind of interesting. But now we have many ways for us to have a direct connection with our audience. And it's important as an artist for you to be able to articulate your art form. If you're a dancer, you got to dance. If you're a writer, you got to write. And if you're a visual person, you got to make. And we got to put our work out there. And we have to understand we could be the world's greatest, most talented fill in the blank but if no one knows about us, we're going to live in anonymity. We're probably going to die broke, sad, and depressed. So we have to learn how to build community around the things that we do. And the more lives of people we touch, the more value we hold in their eyes. The only reason why the three of us are talking is because people know you and people know me. If nobody knows us, we wouldn't even be talking to each other because we wouldn't even know we existed. So we have to put that work out there. Now, I know that the old guard, the traditionalists are going to say, well, it should just be about the work itself. Let the works be. You, you all work too much on fame, but not enough on craft. I'm not saying that craft doesn't matter. Craft matters a lot. But when you get good enough, there's a law of diminishing returns here. That the more time you put in, the less you get out of it. So what we need to do, and this is the thing I'm going to encourage a lot of creative people to do, which is to work on the skills that they didn't teach you in school. The, the power of communication, of rhetoric, presentation, about understanding how to hold conversation, asking a more beautiful question, learning how to negotiate to, to understand worth and pricing. Those things are kind of important to your success. Learning how to, to write and create content for people to consume, those are critical skills in the 21st century. This reminds me of something I heard you say about um, kind of kind of previous business partners where things haven't quite worked out properly and how there's this kind of thought that people have of oh by working with someone else that will kind of complete me that will kind of like fill in the blank of the things that I can't do but your interpretation of that was actually that's not the way to do it it's to look at what you can't do and then learn those skills yourself yes um the creative person suffers from all the maladies of a normal person except for amplified <laughs> 
I'm just going to put it out there. Whatever a normal person feels in terms of insecurity, self-doubt, and self-worth, the, the creative person is going to feel that, and then it's going to ratchet up to like a level 14 or something like that when the scale was stopped at 10, right? Because to be vulnerable is to be an artist. And now we're kind of in tune with what the world feels, and so everything they feel, we just feel in a more deep and intense way. That's what makes artists really, really good. I don't consider myself an artist per se, but that's what makes artists really good. They're vulnerable and they reflect what they see and they can't even help themselves. And so we're, we're like suffering through all these inner uh, negative self-talk. And what we, if we were to look at ourselves, if I can paint, I would draw this giant black hole in the center for your chest. And this hole needs to be constantly filled. It needs to be validated. It needs to be affirmed by other people. It needs to be something that receives awards and, and announcements so that it starts to feel like it's okay. But it's never ending. And I, I chose that term black hole, not in the color black, but a black hole is in a phenomenon space and matter where it sucks everything into it. So we're looking for validation from an external source. It's extrinsic. It's never ending. And it's not a good thing to start to value. And so the way that we think we can plug that hole is to find someone who completes us. And so whenever we see somebody who remotely has the opposite of what we need or whatever it is, we, we, just, we just glom on them and we just attach ourselves to them. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone who's done that to you, who is so needy that you have no room to even think and be yourself anymore, they're saying to you, like, do I look okay? How do I sound? Is my work any good? And that's all of your energy is spent on filling that void that they have inside their heart. And then after a while, you're like, well, who am I? I've lost myself. And slowly but surely, resentment is going to creep in. And then your tolerance is going to decrease. Your patience is going to decrease to a point in which you're like, this is no longer working. So if we start to identify that, when we start to feel that pool where we're grabbing onto people because we feel a little empty, we feel that there's this gap, then we should stop. We should ask ourselves, what is it that we're missing in our lives and why are we looking for other people to fill this? So what we're going to do is we're going to turn inward and try to find intrinsic value by doing self-development, by having honest conversations with ourselves and learning who we are and learning to accept uh, what Jungian uh, psychology or philosophy refers to as, I think, the shadow self, the parts that we don't like, we have to learn to live and love. You mentioned a second ago about about pricing. Um, you have become very well known for pricing um, and helping creatives like work out how to price. It's something we get asked about a lot. Um, how much sort of mindset goes into um, pricing of of like self-confidence and, and talking about what we were talking about there of, of the black hole, like like how much of that is linked to, like how can we link that to our pricing? Can we, is there a way that by understanding ourselves a bit better, we can understand how, I, it sounds super deep, but by understanding ourselves better, we can understand how to charge clients properly. Yeah, I, I think it's a Buddhist philosophy. I'm not Buddhist where our whole identity is a construct. It's not real. And we start to inflate how important we are. And we've been taught, I think, wrongly by professors and people in our industry to talk about the value of your work through our lens. Where I think what we need to do is we need to surrender ourselves to destroy this mental construct of who we are. And it becomes a lot easier. And it's, it's so uh, counterintuitive what I'm about to say. 
So if you haven't heard me say this before, you're going to be scratching your head like, what is he talking about? And so when you and I, David, when you and I meet and you have uh, a mural that you'd like to paint, or I want to commission you to paint a mural, uh, the normal way to do it is you'd start to say like, how big is it? And when does it need to be done by? And these are things that you need to know for yourself. And then you're sitting there thinking, okay, it's really big. It's going to take me a week to paint. How fussy is this client? Oh, it sounds like um, they know what they're doing. So I'm not going to worry that it's going to be like 55 revisions, you know? And you're just doing it from your point of view. And, and so that's how you would begin to price this person. And you're just looking at everything. Well, my last client paid me this and I'm moving up in the world. So I think I'm going to ask for 10% more than what I asked for last time. Something like that. I think that's how most normal creatives do it. But that's all about you again. And But if you were to sit there, David, and say, you know what, Chris, what are you trying to achieve with this? And what problem does the mural solve for you? Well, really, David, it's really about uh, beautifying this space. And I feel like um, for, for most of my life, I've been told I can't do something. And having graffiti artists such as yourself with your stature, I just feel like it's a big middle finger to my father who I never got along with. You know, and that would mean the world to me. So my father saw this in my office. He would be like, you, that's an atrocious thing. And that would just give me satisfaction. Every day I would come and look at this thing and I would just get so much joy from seeing it. And now you've turned the entire conversation around what matters to me and, and why I would even want such a thing. And if you, after listening to it and, and you're like, you know what? You could pay me a lot of money to solve that problem, but I bet you therapy is a lot cheaper than a mural by me, <laughs> right? And then the person's like, I like your sense of humor, man. You're, you're actually looking out for me. You know what? I insist. I understand it's going to cost a lot of money now. Okay, what are we talking about here? So you've been building up the conversation to this point. And so now they understand not just the, 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 intrins- uh, sorry, the extrinsic value of having something on a wall, saying it's beautiful, having status, saying I could afford David to come in and paint a beautiful thing for me. But more importantly, you've touched on something, an emotional thing. And when you touch on emotion, that's where you actually find out the true value of something. Let me make this super concrete for everyone to understand. If you have materials that cover your feet, in our society we call a shoe, and it does its job. You know, it protects you from stepping on sharp objects and getting your toe cut. And also, in case you haven't cut your toenails, it hides that too. Its intrinsic value is as little as possible to just do its function, right? And you put a little design into it. You inject some foam here and there and you you cut out a little emblem that looks like a swoosh. And then all of a sudden, you're going to pay a premium on top of that. It does the exact same job as the other thing which you're going to pay very little money for. Because now we have an emotional attachment to this thing. Because we don't just buy things. We're buying into tribes. We want to join tribes. It's a matter of our own identity. I'm on the Nike team, not the Adidas team. I'm not on the Puma team. I'm not on the Pony team or the New Balance team. I'm on the Nike team. Because why? Because they believe what I believe. Okay, so that went from a $30 pair of shoe to $130. And we think, okay, that's fine. And then you get one with a different symbol on it. It's got a little red stripe and it says Prada on it. And it's kind of funky typeface. And you're like, wow, okay. It still covers my feet. It still does the exact same job. But now I get status. And I'm going to pay $780 for this pair of shoes versus the 130 
same job, same function. But now what I'm saying to the world when I buy this thing is I'm part of a small group of people who can afford and not even worry about paying $780 for a pair of shoes. I now have a, a gained some status and people who are aware of this will look at me differently. And actually they do. And it's a weird thing. And so we've, we've transcended the pure functionality of it. We've moved purely into the emotional space. So luxury brands especially understand how to sell into the emotional state of mind. Now, David, you make a piece of art. One could argue that's got to be the most emotional state of a buyer. And until you learn how to have that conversation, you're just going to sell something that covers someone's wall. And there's a big difference there. So I think what most people listening to this are probably thinking now is, how do I have those conversations? How do I become someone who, instead of selling a blank pair of trainers, sells something for sort of a level of Prada? How do I build, how do I make people want to be a part of my tribe? Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do, Okay. One, you need to get some training. Everybody needs to get some training. And and Dave, you asked this question before. Do I need to be confident first before I can do this? Or can I learn the techniques? And the answer is, it's not A or B, it's yes. Yes, it would help if you start out with a place and a mindset of living in abundance, being confident in what you do and, and the things that you can help people achieve. But even if you weren't confident, if you learn how to do this and you got the results, all of a sudden, the results would tell you you can be more confident now. So here, here's some things you need to do. First, you need to be in a place where your clients that you seek, your ideal clients are going to be. This is problem number one. So everybody that's on Fiverr, that's on Upwork or one of these, um, like a, what is that one other one called? 99designs, this marketplace for creatives. Basically, you're just competing on price. You got to get off those platforms. You got to be in front of the client. And if a client goes to galleries, you need to be in galleries. If the clients go to trade shows, that's where you need to be. And if clients on Instagram looking for a very specific thing, you need to be in front of them at that moment in time and you need to be positioned well. Positioning is a very simple thing. It doesn't have to be as complicated as people make it out to be. Positioning is the space you occupy in the heart and mind of your customer or your client relative to your competitors. Okay, so first of all, you need to know who the customer is and you kind of have to know who your competitors are. And if you know those two things, you're more than halfway through with your positioning. So trying to appeal to every single person is not the way to go. Not understanding who you compete against is not the way to go. So when you're kind of uh, here on Venice Beach here, they have these outdoor market spaces where you're literally right next to homeless people and people selling $5 trinkets. And because if that's who you're going to compete against, your price, your perception of value is going to be much lower as opposed to uh, like Tiffany's, like very high-end, very expensive jewelry. And you walk in and you're like, okay, everything's going to be expensive here. We understand that. So it's an issue of positioning, learning how to ask the kinds of questions that we talked about to understand what is the client's state of mind right now. What are they looking at? How would they value things? What kind of problems they're trying to solve? And being able to tell your story to tie it into the beginning of what we've been talking about earlier today so that they say, I believe what you believe by buying your artwork, by buying your design, I'm also joining your tribe. So you have to have a point of view. You have to be able to tell your story so that people can say like, oh yeah, we believe the same things, you and me. David, I really like your fill in the blank, your, your perspective on, on parliament or on, on uh, class warfare, whatever it's going to be. And that's how they're going to connect with you. I heard you say on a video, you guys sell what you do. I sell what the world can do. What did you mean by that? 
What I mean by that statement is that people have a certain set of skills. And so when they go talk to the client, they ask themselves this question. Does the client need this exact thing that I make? If not, I don't know where to go. And so in the interest of self-preservation, no matter what the client says, all I can hear is they need a logo or they need a website or they need a mural. And so the, 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 that expression, if, all the, if the only tool you have is a hammer, all the problems of the world look like nails to you, that's kind of how it sounds. And so that's what people do. They go into a client meeting. They ask very specific questions like, what kind of logo do you need? What kind of mural do you need? And so they've already begun the conversation about themselves. When I say I say what the world does, it's because I know that if I ask the client what it is that they need and have understanding of what it is that they, they need and how, how to solve it, I can take a pause. I can go out and make a few phone calls and find the exact person, company, or service that does this thing that they need. So I'm going to act in the best interest of my client and connect them. And the person who connects a vendor with a client actually makes the most of money in that transaction. And if you follow the, the model of publishers, of uh, record labels, of um, movie studios, it's exactly like this. They connect the screenwriter. They have the intellectual property rights to, to be able to do uh, a movie adaptation. They connect the directors and the producers and the editors. And then the studio, when it works well, makes most of the money. And so that's what I really mean. So a lot of people are too self-obsessed, self-absorbed by what they do that they never consider that, hey, there are people actually who do the work better than you in your own sphere, but also people who do all kinds of things that you don't know anything about. And you're closing a lot of doors before you even start the conversation. Chris, this was so fun. Thank you so much. I haven't even got to half of my questions. Could you let our listeners know where they can find you online? Yes, uh, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Chris Doe. I, I run a company called The Future, and our mission is to teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. I'm on almost every social platform. You can find me personally at the Chris Doe, and Doe is spelled D is in David, and then O is in Oscar. The Chris Doe, and the website is thefuture.com. The Future, F U T U R. There's no E. It's just thefuture.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you, dude.